Romans chapter 8. So reading from verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then should we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Right, start again. (laughs) Mars bars. bars. Thank you, uh, Johnny. I'll take that as a kind of Amen, brother. Mars bars. Yeah, so this is, when I, Paz asked me to preach on this last, a week or so ago, I was really enthusiastic, but at the same time I was quaking because I thought, how on earth can I do such an amazing passage justice? And I won't. It'll be like me giving you a little scrap of chocolate off one bar and a bit of nougat from another, a bit of toffee from another. You'll get it. I hope we will have a smattering of, of the whole thing, but... It's not really doing justice to it. But here we go. Um, There are also some quite technical words in here, like justification, um, foreknowledge, predestination, glorification. So some absolute theological caucus here. I'm starting to echo a bit now, Richard. A bit less volume, thanks. Um, And so just explaining those in 10 minutes will be difficult. Um, one of the things that um, that made me think about was, um, was sailing. I learned to sail about 10 years ago, and we went on a course in Woodley, and it was extremely difficult to get the boat to go anywhere. Um, first, you have to learn about the four points of sail, because the boat doesn't go in every direction, which was quite a surprise to me. And then there's all these words that you have to know, and things you have to sort of chant as you're about to turn the rudder. And it's all terribly confusing. It's very, very easy to get a large piece of wood whacked across your skull. Um, in the process, you're harnessing the power of the wind, which is invisible. You're using a whole load of difficult terms. Um, 
you're trying to imagine how the boat lies with relation to the wind and therefore what you should do with the rope in your hand and the stick that's controlling where you're going, the rudder. And it's very, very easy to just sit there with the boat facing the wind, with the sail flapping and going nowhere. And um, you think, why would you ever bother to learn all that lot? Well, once, it gets, once you get it going, it's amazing. You can be coasting along, as I'm sure Pads and Kirsty know from many, many enjoyable times, doing boy sailing, as, as they call it, where, where you're really leaning over and you're, you're feeling the intense power of the wind, there's sort of white uh, waves foaming up under the boat, and it's really exciting. And at that point, you think, yes, I'm so glad I bothered to go through all of this. But initially, you think this is very hard. So bear the same analogy in mind as we look at these complex terms and a complex passage. It's really worth it from a practical, daily living perspective. So let's look at verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Who does God work for the good of? Well, this passage, this verse says, for those who have been called according to his purpose and who love him. What does that mean? Verse 29, which follows, will explain that a little bit. But in simple terms, I think what this means is to respond to God's call to turn away from wrong, to accept Jesus' death on the cross as our substitute, and to live a new life. That's what I think loving God and being called by his purpose involves. So this is quite a big statement, and we know that in all things, that's pretty comprehensive. God works for the good of those who love him. Wow. And then verse 29, it says, there's a four, uh, which kind of links the two sentences together. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Hands up who thinks that's impossible to understand. This is the most difficult verse. Thank you, Joe, for your honesty. So I will try to whistle through um, verse 29 and 30. Apologies to the theologians amongst us who will no doubt find many flaws in the very simplistic answers that I will give. So, those God foreknew, that's really interesting. That I think we can just, sort of just about unpack from normal English. That seems to mean knowing beforehand. So, somehow, God can know people it says in one part of scripture that he's known you since before the creation, before the foundation of the world, or chosen us before the foundation of the world. That's quite mind-blowing. Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. 
To be conformed to the likeness of his son is to become like Jesus, which is, could be called holiness. It could be called sanctification, to use another long word that's not even in here at all. And that, in essence, is the, having the sweet and yet firm and prophetic character that Jesus demonstrated in his life on earth. So how, what does it mean to, to be predestined to that? So somehow, this is talking about that the person that God has foreknown, who doesn't necessarily even know that God is on his case or her case, um, has been planned by God to become like Jesus, that they might be, wow, called a brother or sister of Jesus. And then in verse 30, it says, so foreknowledge, predestined, and now in verse 30, called. Eventually, God has somehow worked in that person's life, so they actually realize he's trying to say something to them. That he's, he's calling them. And those he called, he also justified. That's a technical term for the state that we can become in when we respond to Jesus and receive his righteousness. But you can think of it in simple terms as just as if I'd never sinned. So that's, if you like, what happened, the state that we move to when we become a Christian, um, when we've responded to God and to his calling, and then we are set right in his presence. And then at the end, those he justified, he also glorified. I think that's talking about the point when we die, when, we, when we're made perfect and be with God face to face in glory forever. So it's kind of a bit like from the beginning of time to the end of time. And, and the bit that we're kind of in is the bit, for those of who's, who know Christ as our Savior and Lord, the bit after we've been justified, but while we're being conformed to his likeness, but before we're glorified... And for those of us who might not might be thinking, well, I'm not sure God has chosen me. I'm not sure I love God, but I would like to love God and I'd like him to choose me. If you're hearing that in your mind, then that sounds like he is calling you. So think about responding to him and offering him your life, um, giving him giving what you have to him, and he will give all he has to you, which is way more. So all that complexity, what, what's the point of knowing all, about all those different layers of states that a person might go through? Why would you want to know all that? What's the practical upshot of it? Well, one is that you can know from verse 28 for a surety that God will work for, the, for your good because you love him and you've been called according to his purpose. And then the rest of the verses from 31 to 38 unpack that. So what happens when you're called, uh, how does God rather work for the good of those who love him? Well, as we've said, he works in all things and then in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, 
graciously give us all things. So he will provide for us. Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those God has chosen? It is God who justifies in defending us, in making us right in his presence. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So he's interceding or praying for us, speaking to the Father on our behalf. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, how does God work for the good of those who love him? In all things, in providing for us, in defending us, in interceding for us, in keeping us close by himself. But what kind of, what kind of things will that involve? Well, um, a bit worrying actually. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine... Nakedness, danger, sword, death, slaughter. Oh dear, I'm getting a bit nervous about this. Um, This is clearly not Paul saying that the moment you respond to God, you will get a Mercedes and servants and a beautiful wife and everything you ever wanted. And no trouble in your life at all. It's clearly not. Paul's own experience was one of shipwreck, persecution, surviving stonings. He was, life was not easy for him. Went without food quite often. It was, how, how on earth can that be good? How can God be working for the good of, of Paul? Well, he sees in these things not necessarily the things that we would necessarily want to experience. He's seeing that that God's long-term goal for us is to be conformed to the likeness of his son and to be glorified. And in that long, long, long game, rather than a short game, God's plan will use those things to weave into our lives. We won't enjoy it, probably, but God is working for our good. Would somebody be able to read um, James 1-2? Anybody who finds it, just call it out. So somehow in, in the um, life of knowing God, um, not only is, are, the, are the, the moments of joy and uh, delight, and sometimes earthly um, wealth and earthly comfort and earthly ease, but also times of difficulty, And God can use those times of loss, um, 
times of hardship, um, times of poverty, times of, uh, of worry, um, times of failure even, um, as stepping stones to come nearer to him and to glory. I was thinking, um, as the band played earlier, uh, about the song, um, If God is with us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can stand against? And just thinking back to um, one example of some people I know of who've um, lived out some of this. Back in the late 60s, a number of students in the, in the USA got together and started uh, crossing over into Mexico to do some um, outreach and sharing the gospel with people in Mexico. They just organized it on their own as part of their um, student holidays. And um, they found amazing things happened. Um, They were able to uh, hand out a lot of Christian literature. People were converted. Um, A year or two later, they went to Spain, which then was still under General Franco's control. And it was illegal to have Christian bookshops. Everyone said it wasn't going to be possible to have a Christian bookshop. But partly as a result of the summer of these students being there, a Christian bookshop was opened in Madrid and it was possible to advertise it on the metro. And from that, it developed into um, a whole group of, bigger group of students meeting together in Europe every summer, praying together and worshipping for a week and then heading out in battered old transit vans around Europe for evangelism. And eventually that became what's now called Operation Mobilization. And um, a lot of the experiences that some of the people in OM have had over the years have not been easy. Um, They've not all involved success. There have been people lost to car crashes and um, really unpleasant things happening. Somebody opened fire on uh, in one of the ships that they ran. Um, somebody in Indonesia or Philippines, I think, who thought that Islam had been slighted and they shot somebody in, on the boat. Um, but I'm just amazed by their audacity, their faith, their expectation to say, if God is for us, we should just go out there and do it. Um, you know, let's go out and try something. Maybe we'll all be massacred, but we'll have, given, we'll have had a go at it. Um, I'm always inspired by the Jonathan in the Old Testament, who um, goes with his, he's the son of Saul, who's the king of Israel at the time, and he takes his armor bearer with him, and they say, oh, look, there's a cliff over there with some Philistines at the top of it, with a, a kind of outpost. I suppose in today's terms, there'd be a machine gun and, and a load of sandbags or something. And uh, Jonathan says to his arm bearer, let's go up and, and attack those Philistines. And you think, why would you climb a cliff to a load of properly equipped soldiers who could just drop stuff on you, let alone fire anything? Uh, and David says, let's wave at the Philistines more or less and show ourselves. And if the Philistines say, come up here and we'll teach you a lesson, let's take that as a sign that God is with us. That doesn't sound like a very good sign. That sounds like a really good sign for not going up. And 
And, then, and that's exactly what happens. The Philistines say, come on up, come on up, we'll teach you a lesson. Because they're, they're quite young men and look, easy, easy prey. So up they go, the, the two of them climbing up this rock face. And when they get to the top, God somehow routes these Philistine bully boys who have spent all day just relaxing, eating rations, ready for some action. Um, and these two that have just climbed up a cliff somehow manage to defeat sort of three times the number. And that kind of sense of faith, that sort of expectation on God, I, I find so inspiring. And it, this passage confirms that if God is with us, who can be against us? What can we lose by reaching out on him? Thanks.